This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Remember the days of the old schoolyard, as Cat Stevens once said? Well, if you read Brendan Murray's The School, you'll understand what all the laughing and crying is about. So, Brendan, welcome to 3CR. Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me. You begin with ghosts, which is a very powerful image. Students haunt teachers in so many ways. Yeah, I think it's one of those metaphors that I don't know precisely how I came up with it. I think it's sort of just gradually was something that was forming in in the back of my mind without me even realising it for a number of years as a teacher. This idea that, that you are haunted by students. And often I talk in that context about the absence of students. So students who should be in your classroom and they're not there or students who have been in your classroom in the past and they're no longer there and you're kind of haunted by these thoughts of where they are now and and what might be happening in their lives, but very much being haunted also by the students who, who you are teaching and who you are interacting with every day. And you're wondering what you need to do to help them. That's right. And it's Often, as, as all teachers know, these are very complex problems, certainly if, uh, if children have major issues in their own lives beyond school, whether they be issues relating to mental health or, or issues re- relating to socioeconomic disadvantage. Sometimes they're, they're issues that, that you can address and there are things that you can do to help those kids. And Sometimes those problems are just so big and so complex that as a teacher, you have to accept that uh, perhaps you don't have precisely the, the tools or the opportunities to, to fix those big problems. And, and I suppose that can be particularly haunting for, for teachers. I want to pick up on one or two students. We can't cover them all. An interesting one for me is Lonnie, who is actually a bully. But to me, she also seems to exhibit an exceptional intelligence. Definitely. And I'm glad that, yeah, I'm actually really glad that you've asked about Lonnie because I've done a number of interviews and and Lonnie doesn't come up. But I think you're you're completely right. We we try not to label students as as bullies, but the fact is if we get around all the, the niceties, this particular student certainly is exhibiting bullying behaviours very, very consistently and, and is what, what most people would call a bully. In the book, I write about her and, and her, her bullying is, is very social in nature. It's to do with exclusion. It's to do with uh, the social dynamics or amongst year eight girls. And certainly to, to have the type of power that students like Lonnie do develop, and they're, they're not rare students like Lonnie, they're relatively common it requires a significant amount of, uh, of social intelligence that, if directed in the right way, could be an extraordinary strength for, for these types of young people. Yes, because they've learnt these skills without actually being taught in any direct manner. You've also got another one here, Kelvin, who's got cancer. And I'm just beginning to wonder here then how much of teaching is actually welfare and managing students with a range of medical concerns and social problems. Yeah, I think there's a huge welfare aspect to teaching when teaching is done well. And I know there's a lot of discussion these days about 
has the teaching role become too complex? Are we asking too much of teachers? But I find that welfare aspect of the the job really, really fulfilling and, and rewarding. So it's not something that I begrudge at all. And I, and I know lots of teachers who feel the same way that I do. You can't walk into the classroom and just look at it as the three R's or, or just look at it as, as literacy and, and think, well, everything else is going to take care of itself. You're in a position where you're a significant person in the child's life. You're seeing them every single day. But it is. It's a welfare role. It's not just an academics role uh, at all. But also then you have the bureaucracy getting in the way. You have one student who actually doesn't qualify for support, but displays the sort of learning difficulties that require support. How do you manage those situations? Extremely hard to manage, extremely frustrating, both professionally and personally. The student you refer to, again, we could dance around it, but really this student was illiterate, unable to to read or write in any kind of meaningful way and already in year eight, so, so an older sort of student, you could argue. And this student just missed out for an aid because she scored too high on one single part of one test, which is a visual processing thing, and it had nothing to do with reading or writing at all. The system at times can be utterly inflexible to a fault and to, to the point where common sense sometimes, I think, gets overridden by these systems. And it's very frustrating. It's not good enough. And we, as a developed highly educated Western country should be able to do better for our kids. Well, does this explain then why we have, as you quote, 40 to 50% of teachers leaving the profession within five years? I think those bureaucratic stresses are part of it. I mean, you could just look at it in terms of the paperwork and the data entry and, and all that type of stuff that takes hours and hours and hours and can be very frustrating when we know our time can be better spent looking after the students in other ways. There is, though, that emotional burden that is such a big part of teaching and I talk about a lot. When you have young people who have these really significant needs, you really care about those young people, you worry about them, you take those worries home with you every single night and it can create a situation where if you're not prepared for that or if you don't develop strategies to kind of manage those worries it can be very very uh, emotionally exhausting and I think there needs to be more conversation around the emotional burden of teaching and we need to be preparing particularly younger graduates for those burdens that they, they're going to encounter in their early years. One of the things you do talk about that does create an exceptional burden is the focus on assessment and things like NAPLAN. For sure. And again, I mean, I think that there's certainly a place for standardised testing, but the problem at the moment with a thing like NAPLAN is it's become bigger than Ben-Hur. And I think a lot of people who aren't teachers or, or perhaps who don't have children who are in high school or around those NAPLAN ages or primary school as well, a lot of people don't realise this. And I think many people would be frankly horrified if they knew the degree to which that one single test which is really just a snapshot uh, test is dictating what happens in classrooms and in my view that is often to the detriment of students and certainly to the detriment of student passion and engagement and curiosity because we all know it preparing for tests is is boring that's not 
going to inspire curiosity and create what we want. And what we really want are lifelong learners. If you can spark that curiosity and make the motivation intrinsic rather than extrinsic, uh, you're going to get much better results. And this is a conversation, fortunately, that's very much happening in Australia at the moment. And I hope that conversation will will continue to, to gather steam and, and we can get the balance right between allowing students to learn and be inspired, but with a little bit of standardised testing, but not uh, putting the, the cart before the horse and letting standardised testing dictate what's going on in classrooms. There are also extraordinary delights in education. You weave the story of Wambui throughout the book and it's the force or power of education to help socially integrate in some ways. For sure and teaching Wambui was an extraordinary pleasure and an extraordinary learning experience for me. She came uh, to Australia from Kenya when she was quite young. Uh, She was in about year nine when she arrived in Australia and in my English class she ended up writing really fluently and beautifully about many of the experiences that she'd had in Kenya, which um, I won't go go into too much detail here because we don't have the time, but horrific confronting experiences that few of us, thank God, could relate to. Yet she transcended those experiences and in in fact through those experiences had grown in particularly in terms of her her empathy and, and her kindness as a human being. And so coming to Australia with all those experiences, on the one hand, she is able to share those experiences with the students in the class and they benefit greatly from that. And then also our ability as as teachers to support students who might not have grown up in in Australia to to integrate and to find their place and find their feet here and and contribute to what we all know, of course, is one of the most wonderful things about this country. and, And that's the multiculturalism that we have here. Last but not least, students are capable of extraordinary generosity. Would you like to briefly tell us about the Peter Carey story? Sure. So one of my absolute favourite writers is uh, is Peter Carey. Uh, I just love his work and I love to teach his work. I find that the kids really engage with it. And one year uh, I had these just delightful students in my Year 12 class who contacted Carey through I think his agent or his manager told him that I loved his work and and that they really appreciated my teaching and and therefore asked if Peter Carey would would give me a telephone call and Carey did that gave me a ring and and we had a chat and lovely experience for me of course to to talk to one of my literary heroes but what's even more lovely was that extraordinary gesture of of kindness from those kids and I think the, the younger generation get a bad rap sometimes, but you hear stories like that and, and you see that we've got so much to be optimistic about in terms of the future of this country because our young people, as you say, do, do wonderful things and, and many of them are just fantastic. Well, as I said, to find out what all the laughing and the crying is about, you need to read Brendan James Murray's book, The School, and it's a Picador release. So, Brendan, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for your interest. I really appreciate it. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. If you have kids, you may know of this problem. They're on school holidays. You have to work, so you organise someone to look after them. In R.W.R. McDonald's book, Nancy Business, 
the kid and the someone make for a humorous read. Welcome back, Rob. Thank you so much for having me back, Jan. It's a pleasure. <laughs> well, me, we met these characters in your last book, The Nancys. Just remind us who they are. Yeah, sure. So we have Tippy Chan, who is uh, in Nancy business now. She's 12. Uh, she lives in a small town in South Otago, New Zealand. And her uncle Pike and his boyfriend, Devin, who uh, Uncle Pike grew up in that same small town. They live in Sydney. They've come over to babysit Tippy. So when they um, first came over, which was four months earlier uh, in the Nancy's, which was at Christmas time, uh, Tippy and her uncle and Devon formed the secret amateur detective club uh, called the Nancy's. And this was based on Tippy's and Uncle Pike's love of Nancy Drew. And they, at Christmas, they were solving the mystery of um, Tippy's murdered school teacher. And the Nancy's, we find out that Tippy's dad had passed away nine months earlier. And in Nancy business, it's the one year anniversary. And he, he died as a result of a car accident um, just outside of town. You've covered this really very well. Tippy's been doing counselling over her father's death. And mm. these were words quoting from uh, Rob's book, Nancy Business, from the counsellor. We don't say committed suicide anymore took his own life or ended his life. Committed refers back to when suicide was considered a criminal act. It's just, look, it's a serious thing in here, you know, in, in what is a very humorous book, but it's a, a good bit of information to get across, isn't it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for, for a lot of people, they, they took committed to mean, you know, you commit to something. Whereas actually it was, it was meant in a criminal way. So yeah, our language does need to change to reflect that. And there was, you know, I did quite a bit of research around, you know, how do you talk to children about suicide, particularly when it's a, a parent and that sort of mental health aspect. And it was really important, I think, that that was in the book um, for, for Tippy and for the story that we're telling. Well, let's get to a lighter side now. Nancy Drew, as Tippy yeah. says, all her villains, were quote from the book, were usually ugly and rude with terrible clothes and bad makeup. Well, <laughs> as, you said, as you said, we're in here, Riverstone, and Uncle Pike, who is a celebrity hairdresser and makeup artist, and Devon, who is just such a stylist, are here in Riverstone. And yeah. I, I like this, through laughter, Pike snickered, guess we won't find anyone like that here. <laughs> you, you, uh, talk, you talk about Uncle Pike. Uh, well, Tippy looks at him as like a tattooed Santa on steroids. But since yeah. the action four months ago and the other murder, Devon, the boyfriend, has lost his sparkle. Mm. And Tippy's worried about him. Yes, yeah. So it, it's it's opening with Tippy noticing the change in Devon. This is a sequel. Nancy Business can be read as a standalone. We do, you know, give you enough background. But I wanted that richer reading experience for those readers who had read the Nancys. And also what I wanted to explore is this idea 
of you know i didn't want it to be a reset and you know they they're off on another adventure and it's like we're starting from ground zero again there are impacts for what has gone on before and particularly for poor devon who always seems to be the one in the trio that that, that sees the awful you know traumatic thing yeah. so we better get onto the awful traumatic thing that's happened now at 3 47 a.m there's a bomb threat to police. So what happens at 4.21 a.m. in this very small town? Yeah, so there is a, a van drives up and uh, there's a massive explosion in the centre of town, which causes a lot of damage, destroys part of the, the, the town hall. But I guess most importantly, three people die mm. and one is very severely injured. So one of them is Mr. Tulip, who, oh, well, he will Jansen, but that's his business. And yeah. he's absolutely loved by the whole community. So they can't understand why he would trigger this murder. It was his van. So yeah. that's what they're investigating. But there's worse than that. There's another threat. And this is a threat that's going to happen in six days' time. And mm. Tippy is so concerned about this. Rob, can you read, please, from page 69 from Nancy Business? Yep, my pleasure. Each time I closed my eyes, I pictured Mum driving her car over Riverstone Bridge, tapping her hands on the steering wheel to her favourite song by the exponents, Why Does Love Do This To Me? Then an explosion. In my mind, I saw the split second of her shocked face before her car catapulted upwards in a fireball, in amongst concrete chunks and dust and billowing black smoke. The car hovering in the air like magic, then plummeting into the river below. Slabs of road and broken arches torpedoing after it, piling on top of Mum's car, crushing the blackened roof and twisting the windowless metal frames, grinding it into the riverbed. Mum buried underwater inside a grey mangled mountain, her burnt hands still clutching the wheel. That night I didn't sleep. I'm, oh. So another little bit of seriousness. So I think we better get to some humour right now. Yeah. <laughs> After the first explosion, there's a memorial to thank all of those people who helped. Tippy's mum was a nurse at the scene and also yeah. Devon was there. So, of yes. course, when... We have this memorial. Devon's up there on stage looking particularly fetching. Yes, he's um, put on a special outfit. He is especially looking hot uh, for a certain reason as well. The description of the shorts, they look as <laughs> if they were painted on. <laughs> and he's got his gold ABBA boots on as well. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. There's... A reason for uh, Tippy to find, you know, who's done this murder and in the six days between mm. the two uh, bomb threat notes, she's, she's got some help from people. There's Lorraine, the newspaper journalist. Yeah. And there's also Mike Hornblower. Yes. Mm. So Mike Hornblower's a minor celebrity who's on a news channel based up in Auckland. So Mike and Uncle Pike have history. Um, they were boyfriends back when they were teenagers. They were sort of each other's first boyfriend. 
and Mike Hornblower has never gotten over Pike uh, and Pike took off uh, without a, a word to Sydney and um, yeah that had a pretty devastating effect on Mike Hornblower but the Mike Hornblower we see now as an adult is Ah, oh, can I say he's a dick, Jan? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Tippy would have even said worse than that. Yes, probably. Yes, I'm surprised about Riverstone and mm-hmm. the homosexuality there, and there's a whole thing in it about who can out somebody. Yes, Tippy, her I guess one of her key drivers is the search for truth and not wanting to know why. And so she talks to uh, Lorraine about Lorraine's fiance and uh, because of information she has and she thinks Lorraine mm. needs to know. Um, but what Tippi doesn't realise, because she's, you know, young and this is her first experience with this, is around outing people. So that's a lesson for her to learn. For her as part of her coming of age and growing up and she's in this world and, you know, she's still learning. So She is, yeah. I like how this book has been called Representing Queer Voices in Commercial Fiction. Are you happy with that? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, as long as it gets its readers, I'm <laughs> happy. And, yeah, no, I, it was um, uh, the publisher that was was talking about that and I hadn't really thought about it I just wanted my book to to find a reader um, particularly those readers who either haven't had much to do with the queer community or are gay themselves or have a gay child or whatever just so you know they can make some new queer friends and yeah for, for the commercial aspect look I'll take it for sure. Um, yeah, just as long as it gets as wide a readership as possible, that to me is is success. Yeah. Now, I'm going back to Riverstone and it's Airbnb. Yeah. Pike, Pike and Devon are staying in this Airbnb. Did it really deserve the bad reviews it got? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awful. Um, I think it's uh, it's suffering from leaky home syndrome. Um, <laughs> and it's just, I don't know, if you've had those Airbnb experiences where the, the photos don't quite match up with the, <laughs> with the house. Um, and, yeah, just that creepy vibe. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well- while they're staying there, they've bought another house and it's called the Murder House, which yeah. <laughs> is a bit of a wonder. But Jack Pepper, the yes. very handsome tradie, is working there and there's a lot more comments about him. <laughs> yeah, so bless bless Jack. He's, he's, um, he's a gentle soul who I think quite a bit of it goes over his head and he's just getting on with it. But it does cause friction between um, Devon and Uncle Bob. Yeah. Um, Which really hurts Tippy too, because she can see yes. this this relationship problem. She's got, you know, a few problems of her own with her mother and also yeah getting older you know we um uh uncle pike who's this celebrity hairdresser uh gives her a rock star look with a new hairdo and even chose her how to do makeup and 
then she has a first period. How is that celebrated? So um, Tutipi's horror, a, a street party is organised um, with pretty much everyone she knows and even people she doesn't know uh, coming along. And she, she wakes up from a nap and comes outside and gets yelled surprise. And yes, so, <laughs> so yes, it's very much celebrated. And what I wanted to do there is, you know, I'm finding it with, with my daughters and, you know, it was just talking openly about, you know, um, periods and, and, and just this weird, here's me mansplaining to you, Jane. Jane <laughs> um, but, you know, this, this weird thing that, that's happened in the past around shame around this stuff. Yes, and I say to my daughters, like, this, you know, this is not natural. There's nothing to be in. There's no shame attached. So, but for Tippy, of course, she's teenager and horrified and self-conscious, and certainly this is the last thing um, she is really wanting to deal with. It's lovely that we have Melanie, the the the, the next door neighbor goth girl, who's very loud mouths, sort of saying, yeah. "Oh well, it's time to celebrate with a vodka." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Melanie and Tippi are becoming more like, um, you know, it's more like her big sister, which is nice because they're both single uh, kids. And so Melanie being the next door neighbour. And yes, she's certainly um, not shy to speak her mind, which is fantastic. So we've got the murder investigation, which haphazardly takes place along with a house renovation and the personal challenges with family and uh, re relationships. And there's also a new dog, Fabulous. Yes. Now, Tippy gives her a reason for naming it, but you're the author. <laughs> you tell us why you called this dog Fabulous. Uh, I just think it's such a great name. I love Fabulon. And someone was saying, you named it after a, um, I think my editor, you named it after a detergent is it or something I was just like well no I just think Tippy thinks this name's great and of course you know the Uncle Pike and Devon get blamed because the, the Helen goes what is it with you gays and these names and they're like, well, actually it was your daughter that named it yeah well, Tippy and her flamboyant uncles helped to solve murders in a Nancy Drew way, but with a lot more inappropriate humour and alcohol in Nancy Business, a cosy queer crime novel by R.W.R. MacDonald. Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much, Jan. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.